This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Before we get started with today's episode, we just wanted to let you know that if you're interested in trying audiobooks or have been eyeing an Audible membership, you can get two free audiobooks when you sign up for a free trial at bookriot.com audible. Most free trial offers for Audible only give you one download with your 30-day trial, but we're giving you two. Audiobooks are a great way to work more reading into your life, whether it's during your commute, while you're cooking, while you're at the gym, or whatever. So go to bookriot.com audible to sign up for your free trial and get two free audiobooks. Welcome to For Real, a bi-weekly nonfiction books podcast that puts the spotlight on books that tell it like it is, or at least try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a Book Riot podcast and is hosted by me, Kim Ukra, and fellow rioter Alice Burton. This week, we have a special guest host, Velocerator Liberty Hardy, who is the host of Book Riot's All the Books podcast. We're recording today, uh, recording this episode on Friday, May 24th. Hello, Liberty. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you for asking me to be here. I thank you. Uh, we're doing a podcast double header because I'm the guest on uh, all the books this week. So yes. we're just podcasting and talking about books for a long time, which is super awesome. So you are you read like more books than any human person I have ever I've ever met. Uh, do you have like any like favorite genres or anything you're into right now that people might be interested in? Um, right now, I don't know what is driving it, but I have been going back and reading all the horror books. I say horror funny because I'm from Maine. Um, reading all the <laughs> horror books that I read as a child. So I've been reading a lot of John Saul and Christopher Pike, and it's delightful and also um, alarming. And also, like, I don't know if it's because there wasn't the internet or because I didn't read them all, like, one after the other, but they're so formulaic and like a lot of the same things happen in in these books and also like some things happen they're like a little vc andrews weird stuff um but it's it's just thrilling me to no end so that's like when i'm not doing my work reading like that's my special treat that i give myself that and um i've been watching murder she wrote uh, i haven't seen since i was a kid and that like i read an article once that said that nostalgia is like really good for you and if it helps your brain if you go back and like watch old shows or old movies or read things that you've read because it kind of comforts you and also like like challenges your brain because you're trying to remember names and faces and it it, I think it really works because I just feel so relaxed when I'm doing this and like I did not remember that they have like 40,000 guest stars on every episode of Murder She Wrote and I'm just like look at all these famous people in one spot (laughs) it's amazing (laughs) That is amazing. That's kind of how I felt when I was watching, like, I didn't watch ER when it was first on, but I watched the whole thing, like, when it came on to Hulu finally. Mm-hmm. And that's how I felt, too, where I would watch and I'd be like, oh, that person's famous is now. Oh, that person's famous <laughs> now. Is, like, what? Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's I love funny. that game. Yeah. I have one more question for you before we kind of dive into the episode. Okay. I'm wondering, what is your favorite nonfiction book, like, of all time? Do you have one? Oh, I that pop quiz. Um I don't know a favorite nonfiction book. Um, I would say the my fa- I would say In Cold Blood was like the scariest book that I've ever read. 
horror, like wise fiction or nonfiction. So I always hold that in high esteem. Um, my favorite nonfiction book of the last 10 years, I would say, is probably The Skies Belong to Us by Brendan Kerner, which is about the history of skyjacking. So I'll go with those two. Excellent. I like I like both of those very much also. They're really good. Cool. All right. So we're just going to dive straight into the episode, which I'm excited about. So usually our, we start every episode of For Real with new books. So these are books that have come out in the last few weeks um, that we are have read or just are excited about reading that we wanted to talk about. So um, Liberty, I'm going to let you go first on this one. Oh, all right. This book actually just came out. Uh, it's called Sorry I'm Wait, I Didn't Want to Come, One Introvert's Year of Saying Yes by Jessica Pan. Um, Kim already heard me talk about this for all the books. So um, Kim, if you want to just, you know, do something else while I'm talking, it's, I totally respect that. Um, so Jessica Pan is an introvert. Um, she is very uncomfortable in social situations. She doesn't like to go to parties. She doesn't like conversing with strangers. And she kind of talks about what that means, what it means to be an introvert, like how you can have outgoing introverts um, and how Susan Cain's book, uh, Quiet, sort of touched on that. She herself is a shy introvert. She refers, she refers to herself as a shintrovert. She says, which also sounds like somebody who has a real thing for lower legs. Um, so she talks about how she went through this difficult period in her life a few years ago uh, where she left her job. Her friends in the area were moving away and she was lonely and she didn't really have anything going on. And she was talking with a former coworker who was telling her about how she met her boyfriend while she was standing in line for the bathroom at some event and how she got this fabulous job because she met this woman when she was out one day and how she was diagnosed with this illness by a doctor that she met at a party just by conversing with him. And so she decides like she's going to try saying yes to things. She's going to try doing things um, that she normally would not do. Like she's going to do this for a year. And so she consults some experts on, um, you know, social fears and on, um, introverts. She calls this, the first guy that she calls, you know, tells her, you know, like, or asks her, like, what is your greatest fear? Like, why don't you want to go out in public or do these things? And she realizes, she tells him, you know, it's, I'm afraid of being humiliated in front of strangers. I'm, I'm terrified of, of that. And he tells her, like, what he recommends is that people go out and pretend to trip and fall in front of a bunch of strangers or dump a pot of coffee, like, not hot coffee, but, or, or a pitcher of water, like, on yourself at a restaurant, and so, and, like, just see what that's like, what's gonna happen, and so he tells her, because she's in London at this time, he wants her to go up to strangers on the street and say, do we have a queen? I think we do, and it, what is her name? Um, and, because, like, everyone knows the queen, and that there's a queen, so, you know, she gets different reactions from people who are just, like, sweet about it, and people who kind of look at her, like, you know, how do you not know there's a queen and people who are concerned for her and like ask, like, do you need help? Do you need someone to accompany you? And she realizes with all these different reactions, the point is she doesn't die of embarrassment. Um, and so she starts consulting other experts and she gets various suggestions um, on what to do and how to challenge herself. Um, she hosts a dinner party, which is something that she's always avoided. Uh, she performs stand-up comedy. She does all these things that make her uncomfortable uh, because she says that she's going to do it. Um, it's very funny. It's very smart. But I also want to mention that it's not for everyone. Um, this is just her particular story. She is not saying, if you are an introvert, you need to do these things. She's not saying that at all. This is just like her account of what she chose to do. And she gives like helpful hints about like maybe finding a comfortable middle zone if you 
want to get out a little bit more, but you don't want to spend a lot of time out or like, you know, allowing yourself like so much time and then, and then tapping out, you know, stuff like that. Um, because I know I, I was looking at the reviews on Goodreads and there are some people who were very anxious just reading the description of this book. So if that is you, if just like hearing me talk about it makes you anxious, it is not the book for you. Um, but I did really, as someone like who people assume is very outgoing when I'm out in public and I'm actually quite awkward and shy, like I really appreciated reading this book. So again, it is Sorry I'm Late, I Didn't Want to Come, but One Introvert's Year of Saying Yes by Jessica Pan. That sounds so interesting. Yeah, I'm, yeah, just... I'm an introvert too. So it's like listening to the idea like, oh man, go out and talk to strangers like that is horrifying to me. But (laughs) I'm interested in like the idea of what that would do and like what pushing yourself outside of your sort of natural inclinations. So yeah, great pick. So my first pick is one that I have only gotten to read a bit of, but I it's very interesting so far, so I'm excited to talk about it. It's called The Queen, The Forgotten Life Behind an American Myth by Josh Levin. Um, And so the kind of start of this book is the idea. So Ronald Reagan um, in the 1980s made the idea of the welfare queen a thing. And it was, it's not a, not a good thing. And it was, has a lot of racist undertones and all of that. But I always just kind of thought that it was a rhetorical device and it was just sort of a boogeyman that he threw up because he was trying to get people to get riled up about welfare fraud and stuff. But it actually turns out there was an actual person who inspired that idea and who became, um, but her story has just sort of disappeared and been lost behind all of the rhetoric and all the things connected to that. So in this book, Joshua Levin tries, Levin tries to, um, bring her story to light. So uh, the woman who is kind of the the welfare queen that inspired that, is, her name was Linda Taylor. Although during the time that she committed fraud, she also went by many other names. She committed various types of fraud and may have even committed met several murders. Um, so she is notorious, uh, but like nobody knows about her. So um, her story starts, or the, the book starts in 1974 in the south side of Chicago, where Linda Taylor calls the police and reports a burglary at her house. But uh, the way that she describes the burglary is just totally implausible. Like she says that they stole her refrigerator and all these other like appliances and furs and jewelry, but there's no evidence that like the doors were tampered with or that someone took the windows off. So like, how did they get a refrigerator out of a door? Like that's ridiculous. So the police kind of start digging around and trying to figure out what's going on, one particular detective, and soon discovers that like she is not who she says, who she said she is, and she's connected to all these other crimes. And um, they think that she may have been a, she may have kidnapped people, she may have actually murdered people, she may, has defrauded the government in a bunch of different ways, um, and just like defrauded and tricked all of these different people. So um, she kind of pops into the press and then her story kind of spirals out of control. Um, But uh, the book then goes back to look at how this woman, Linda Taylor, grew up in the Jim Crow South, how she was an outcast due to the color of her skin. Um, She was really light-skinned, so it's about areas in where she was able to pass for other races as part of her survival, but also the frauds that she was committing, um, and just like what this whole big story is about. Um, And I Initially, I was a little bit nervous when I heard about this because I was like, what, like, what is the frame of this going to be? And like, are we going to like dive into racist stereotypes and all of that? But I think his approach seems really smart and interesting in that it's trying to figure out what is the story behind this person who we sort of have turned into a stereotype and uh, an inaccurate racist stereotype and, and what is, what is the real story behind that? So I love books like that. So I'm excited about this one. Uh, so that is The Queen, The Forgotten Life Behind an American Myth by Josh Levin. I have that too. I'm really looking forward to reading it. Yeah, it looks really fun. So my newish pick, my next newish pick came out May 7th, I think. So it's kind of not new, but it's really good. 
It's called From Scratch, A Memoir of Love, Sicily, and Finding Home by Tembi Locke. Tembi Locke is an actress. She is also the sister of Attica Locke, the author who we love and talk about all the time on on Book Riot podcasts and in newsletters. Um, And this is her memoir. Um, When she was younger, she was in Italy. She was in Florence and she saw a man and she says it was love at first sight for both of them. Um, his name is Sarrow and, or excuse me, Sorrow. And he was a, a professional chef um, and they get married. They want to be together. They want to have a life together. It's kind of a problem because um, his traditional Sicilian family is very against him being with a black American actress. Uh, but they are determined to be together. So they move to Los Angeles and they start working on their careers and they build this life together. They adopt a baby. But then um, Sarah is diagnosed with cancer. The prognosis is not good. Um, and he passes away. And before that happens, he reunites with his family um, in Italy and um, they, she kind of gets to know them a little better. And she, in this memoir, she discusses like the three summers that she spent with them after her husband died. She takes her daughter and goes to Sicily and how she sort of embraced this family and how they embraced her back. And it's about love and family and loss. And you would be correct in thinking that it's going to make you cry a whole bunch. Um, but like, it feels good to cry sometimes and we need to, and it's just beautiful. So again, it is called From Scratch, A Memoir of Love, Sicily, and Finding Home by Tembe Locke. That one sounds so beautiful. Yeah. Excellent. I'm so glad you talked about that. Um, so my second pick for new books is one that I'm sort of picking because I'm channeling Alice because I think this is one that she would be really into. Um, and I'm also <laughs> kind of excited about it. So it's called Sisters and Rebels, A Struggle for the Soul of America by Jacqueline Dowd Hall. And so this is a big biography of three sisters, uh, Elizabeth Grace and Catherine Lumpkin, who in the kind of like 1880s-ish were born to a prominent slaveholding family. And they were raised in the South in this culture of white supremacy. Um, and so as they grew up, Elizabeth decided to stay in the South, but Grace and Catherine both moved North. Um, and when they were there, they uh, they reinvented themselves as radical thinkers in different areas about religion and race and labor and feminism and all of these different things. And so they became kind of uh, lights and... Um, thinkers in that era. And so she um, uses these three women and their kind of diverging paths to look at um, Southern expatriation and progressivism. Um, She looks at the kind of revolutionary zeal of the early 21st century, um, looks at sisterhood and families, um, and kind of puts that all together. Um, And so like, admittedly, like people who listen to this podcast know that like a 600 plus page biography is like a hard sell for me. Like that is just like, something I really struggle with, but um, it sounds just so fascinating, particularly the frame of these three sisters. And the other thing that got me really excited about it is that um, Hall actually interviewed two of these sisters in the mid-1970s while she was working on another project. Um, And so she actually was able to talk to them about their lives and everything that happened to them. And so those interviews, which she did a long time ago, but then um, have kind of circled back to in some of her other work become a really important part of this book. So um, I just think it sounds super interesting. And um, also we needed a historical like fiction, nonfiction book because that's what Alice always brings to the podcast. I'm channeling her interest a little bit. Um, So that book is Sisters and Rebels, A Struggle for the Soul of America by Jacqueline Dowd Hall. All right. 
Yes. So that is where we're, we're going to conclude new books a little bit quicker today than usual because um, we wanted to talk more about, uh, since we're about mid-year almost, uh, talk about our favorite nonfiction of the year so far. So Liberty and I are both going to trade off talking about some of the books that we have read so far this year that we have really loved. Um, and I'm excited because there's some, just like there's been so much good nonfiction this year so far. It's been so great. Um, has your reading in other areas also been really good this year? I'm curious. Yes. Yeah. I th- I feel like my reading gets better every year. I feel like I fine tune what I'm interested in uh, more each year because I get more recommendations for people I trust and more people know like what I'm interested in. So they pitch that to me first. So those are the books I get to first. So I feel like my reading is just exceptional and more exceptional every year. Excellent. Cool. Um, so the first book I want to talk about is one that I think I actually talked about on maybe the last episode of the podcast. I can't remember. I've read it pretty recently, but it is so great. Uh, it's called Notes from a Young Black Chef by Kwame Onowachi and Joshua David Stein. Uh, and this is a memoir about a young black chef. So Chef Kwame grew up in the Bronx, but he spent um, a good chunk of his childhood in rural Nigeria um, because as a, a tween and teen, he was a handful and his mom really struggled to um, to discipline him. So she sent him to live with her uh, her family in Nigeria for some of his childhood. Um, And he learned a lot while he lived there. Um, He eventually came back, but he kind of uh, was on the streets for a while. He sold drugs and kind of continued this like lifestyle that was was not conducive to health and wellness for him. So uh, he went into college, but eventually um, he decided to stop doing that and decided he wanted to get into um, food, into cooking. So um, he uh, did some catering on the street, He, or excuse me, some catering. And then um, he eventually got a job as a chef on a Deepwater Horizon cleanup ship where he got to kind of have shares love of food with the people on that ship. Um, after that, he returned to New York and started a catering company. Um, he funded his catering company by selling candy on the subway, um, goes to cooking school, uh, eventually competes on Top Chef. He opens a restaurant in Washington, D.C. That is a, a huge undertaking and had a ton of publicity and ends up just not working, which is not a spoiler because he kind of alludes to that in the opening of the book. Um, and it's just kind of like supposed to be this big triumphant moment. It ends up being just like a disaster for a lot of reasons. And so the whole book is kind of about his growth as a chef and as a person. Um, he is, it's, uh, it's just such a good read. It's so honest. It's such great writing. Um, he's very open about his life and his choices. He doesn't try to sugarcoat anything. He's very straightforward about like, this is who I am and this is what I've done. This is where I am today and this is what I've learned. Um, and just like very interesting insights into restaurants and the kind of the behind the scenes. Um, he talks a lot about kind of the casual and overt racism in the fine dining industry, which I think was really fascinating. Um, and just uh, just a really cool, interesting story. Um, and so I, I read this one and I just, I loved it. I read it in just a few days. It was so interesting. Um, and I highly recommend it. So that is Notes from a Young Black Chef by Kwame Onowache and Joshua David Stein. Um, my first pick is probably my favorite nonfiction of the year. Uh, I haven't read anything like it. Um, it's Furious Hours, Murder, Fraud, and the Last Trial of Harper Lee by Casey Sepp. And as we know, Harper Lee is the author of To Kill a Mockingbird. And um, we mentioned In Cold Blood a few minutes ago. Uh, I talked about how that was one of my favorite nonfiction books. And it's possible that it was the amazing, stunning Pulitzer Prize winning gem that it was because 
Um, a lot of people don't realize uh, Truman Capote made up a lot of the stuff and changed a lot of the story. Uh, and Harper Lee was his assistant and she was very unhappy with the way he behaved, the way that um, he handled the book, the things that he changed. She thought it was going to do a lot for her career and he wanted to wait a long time before he released it. He wanted to wait until the prisoners were executed to have his ending. And she just was like really unhappy with the whole situation. Um, so she eventually heard about a different trial and decided she was going to write her own nonfiction crime book. There was a man uh, that accused of killing a reverend. This was Reverend Willie Maxwell. He himself had been accused at different times of murdering five of his own family members for the insurance. Um, like his first wife died in this very suspicious car accident. And then someone else in his family died. And then his second wife died also in, in a suspicious way. And he was collecting insurance on these on these family members and basically escaped justice because he had a really wily lawyer um, who really knew how to work the system. Um, so what happened was at the funeral of his uh, uh, purported fifth victim, uh, this man sh stood up and, and shot him at the funeral, shot the reverend and killed him. And so this man was almost like seen as a hero because it was sort of like this open secret. Like everyone knew that what the reverend was doing, they just couldn't pin it on him. Um, and he got off because he was defended by the exact same lawyer who was defending the reverend all those times. Um, and Harper Lee heard about this story. She was living in New York City at the time. And she went back to her home state of Alabama and spent a year gathering info and interviewing people. And then she spent many years writing this book. This was like in the 80s. And then nothing. People don't know like what happened to the book she was working on, why it didn't come out. And Casey Sepp kind of digs into this and, and talks about it. Like the first part is like about the Reverend and the second part is about the lawyer. And then she talks about Harper Lee and like what happened to this book that she thought was going to turn things around for her. Um, and I find it really interesting that Casey Sepp, like this book is everywhere right now and she's gaining a lot of notoriety writing about a nonfiction book that was being written because she didn't enjoy how her friend's nonfiction book that brought him a lot of notoriety was done. Um, I don't know if that's irony or, or probably not irony, but um, I just, I really am excited for Casey set because this book is incredible. And like I said, it's everywhere right now. It's so, so interesting. So it is Furious Hours, Murder, Fraud, and the Last Trial of Harper Lee by Casey Sepp. That sounds awesome. That's like the book of the year that I'm like mad I haven't read yet because it, it does sound so good and like a good literary mystery, but also like everything about Harper Lee is really fascinating and like the choices she made and all of that. So yeah, yeah, that one looks, that looks really good. So my second uh, next favorite book of the year so far is uh, Parkland by Dave Cullen. And this is a, an account of the shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, and everything that has come since then, uh, focusing specifically on the student activists who emerged in the wake of that tragedy. So um, Dave Cullen is... Um, I don't want to say he's like the guy writing about school shootings, but he did write Columbine, which uh, he wrote. He released about ten years after the Columbine high school shooting, which I, I would say is sort of the definitive account of that shooting. Um, and so, in the opening of Parkland, he talks about how since Columbine and since writing that book, he has been called on over and over again to comment on school shootings and school violence, and. Um, 
how that has sort of worn on him and how he didn't want to have to write about this again. But after uh, the Parkland shooting and as he saw the emergence of the student activists and the um, and their movement, he wanted to be there. And so he has started to write about that. And so um, this book is, it's not a bookend to Columbine, but it is he, in the book, he kind of over and over again is, is making a comparisons to look at how our response to school shootings has changed over time and how we had this period where like it seemed like nothing was happening and then Parkland feels like it was maybe uh, a movement and and there was actually a momentum for change although like whether that has panned out or not is is up for debate certainly it really really hasn't I guess um so anyway, uh, the book, as it it doesn't focus on the shooting at Parkland. It focuses on what happens after and what happens with the students and what they have done and how they have coped and the things they have learned and the ways that their lives have changed since. Um, I appreciated that he doesn't go into much detail about the day of the shooting and he deliberately doesn't use the killer's name. Instead, he focuses on the survivors and these other students. I loved how um, empathetic and kind the book is. Um, he's not easy on the students, but he does give them space to be kids and like understands that these are grieving young people, um, but also giving a good perspective on what they're doing and how their activism has evolved and changed over time. Um, and the other thing I want to say about this book is that it has the some of the best end notes I have ever read. So I don't always read end notes in books, but I started to skim these because I was interested and they are, they're so remarkable. Um, they have a bunch of stories that just kind of didn't make it into the book because they didn't really fit with the narrative as he was doing it. And so he gives you those stories and why he didn't include them. But he also has all these stories about how he did his reporting. And so it's how he found information, how he constructed a scene, how he put pieces together. Um, and so if you ever want to like understand how a really good reporter works, read the endnotes to this book because he he outlines that completely and gives you all these details. And I thought as a former journalist myself, I just thought it was so fascinating to read those two. So in addition to being a really good book, it has really good endnotes, which is super nerdy, but I, I love that kind of stuff. So um, that book is Parkland by Dave Cullen, uh, another of my favorites so far this year. Completely changing direction and gears and, and everything. Um, my next pick is a memoir, probably my favorite memoir of the year. It's called Rough Magic, Riding the World's Loneliest Horse Race by Laura Pryor Palmer. Um, at the age of 19, Laura decided uh, she was sort of adrift between jobs. Um, she didn't really know what she was going to do. And one day she was on the internet and she saw an ad for the Mongol Derby, which is like, Build as like the world's toughest, longest, hardest horse race. It recreates Genghis Khan's horse messenger system and participants ride wild ponies uh, one after another across a thousand kilometers of Mongolia. Um, and she was like, well, you know, her aunt is a, is a rider. She rides professionally. She was familiar with horses, but like she didn't really ride herself. Um, and her father was like, no way are you doing this? But she was like, you're not in charge of me and entered to participate in the race. So in 2013, she flew to Mongolia and she says that she did not read the warning on the website for the race, which basically says, um, you're on your own when you're out there. Uh, you're going to go through these terrible weather patterns and long stretches where there's no one around. If something happens to you, like no one will be there. If something happens to you, it'll take a long time for the people who get you to get you somewhere else. Like you're basically taking your own life in your hands. And she's like, so she goes and, you know, she's just like, I'm just going to do this. She She's very um, obstinate and 
and thinks that she can do it. So she goes and she rides in this horse race. You like ride between these certain hours a day. If you ride outside of those hours, you can be disqualified. Uh, you go through like 25 different ponies and you know, she slept where she could. There were these nomadic families that would take the, the participants in. She would sleep a couple hours. Um, she weathered illness. She weathered bad falls. And it is not a spoiler because it's right at the beginning. She becomes the youngest person to ever win this race, which is just bananas. Um, but, you know, outside of that, like that is secondary to me to this memoir as part of this memoir because the writing is incendiary. I mean, she, it, it just felt like my skin was tingling the entire time I read this book because the writing was so beautiful and raw and the way she phrases things like were like unlike anything I had heard before. Um, so I just fell in love with this gorgeous writing. And then, you know, the story, of course, it's incredible. So it's called Rough Magic, Riding the World's Loneliest Horse Race. And it's by Laura Pryor Palmer. I'm so glad you talked about that one because, yeah, I read that and I just loved it, too. It's really, really good. Uh, it has, like, the best cover, too. I just loved it. Uh, like, so bright and beautiful. It's, it's such a good one. All right. So uh, my next pick is uh, it's called Good Talk by Mira Jacob. And this is a graphic memoir about identity, interracial families, and realities that divide us. Um, and so the premise of the book is that Mira Jacob's uh, son, who is a mixed-race kid, he's half-Jewish, half-Indian, um, when he was six years old, he started asking all of these questions about just, like, everything. And some of them are easy to answer and some get really complicated to answer. So stuff like how brown is too brown or can Indians be racist or is Michael Jackson white or black or what does love between different people look like? Um, and so after the election in 2016, all this like tension in the media started to spread in their family and his questions just kept getting complicated. And so the premise of this memoir is Mary Jacob just recording these conversations and trying to understand them. Um, and so the book is made up of drawings and dialogue and it is, it is beautiful. Like it has these beautiful color illustrations in the back, but then she has the, the pictures of the people are just very, um, so I saw her at a panel uh, at a book festival a couple of weeks ago, and she talked about the reason choosing to do this as a graphic memoir is that she wanted to just present the conversations as they were and let people respond to them rather than having to do some interpretation like she might have to do in an essay or something. And so the the drawings of people in the book are just very flat and kind of expressionless. They look like paper dolls almost. Um, and so it's just letting these conversations exist and having you read them and like respond to them in a way. And it's very like they're heartbreaking and so beautiful. Um, some of the stuff that resonated with me is um, at the, her, her husband's parents are white and they're Trump supporters and she is an Indian woman. And so just trying to like grapple with the idea that like she loves her in-laws and they love her and her son, but also they supported President Trump and he his rhetoric is act makes the world actively unsafe for people of color and so trying to figure out how to how to grapple with that. I mean there's just lots of really resonant and complicated stuff in there that I found really beautiful and really hard to read in starts but very um yeah, just really wonderful and really beautifully done. It's a it's a beautiful beautiful piece of work. So that is Good Talk by Mira Jacob. My next pick is The Sakura Obsession, The Incredible Story of the Plant Hunter Who Saved Japan's Cherry Blossoms by Naoko Abe. And it is about the Englishman Collingwood Ingram. In the beginning of the description, they call him Collingwood Cherry, in quotes, Ingram. But I don't think he was cherry originally before all this took place. 
1907, he went to Japan on his honeymoon and he fell in love with the sakura trees, the cherry trees there, and ended up bringing hundreds of cuttings back to England with him and made all these different strains and planted them and grew all these amazing trees. And he found out in 1926 that the great white cherry tree was extinct in Japan and he ended up sending some of his cuttings to them so they could start growing them again and ended up sending cuttings all around the globe. And it's just this, it's a very specific micro history. There is, it's like a lot about trees, the histories of these trees in Japan, um, you know, what happened to them, how they became extinct and about him. Um, but it's also like the chapters are short and it's really easy to read and it's really interesting. And it's like, nice to read it's like it's almost like a nice history for a change like usually you read like these are all these terrible things that happened and this was just like oh it just feels pretty just like cherry trees themselves so i really enjoyed reading it it is the sakura obsession the incredible story of the plant hunter who saved japan's cherry blossoms by naoko abe oh yeah that's a great one i was so excited about that one i haven't gotten to finish it yet but yeah, the parts I read were, yeah, like you said, just like nice, you know, like just just nice to read, which sometimes you need. And don't always find a nonfiction because a lot of it's about dark stuff. <laughs> That's a most of it. All right. So uh, my final pick is a collection of essays called The Collected Schizophrenias by Esme Weijang Wang. Uh, and this is um, the most recent winner of the Grey Wolf Nonfiction Prize, which is one of my favorite nonfiction um, ways to find books. Um, the winners of the prize have been some of my favorites every year that they come out. Uh, the Empathy Exams by Leslie Jameson is a former winner. Uh, Leaving Orbit by Margaret Lazarus Dean was also a winner. Um, those are both stellar. Um, but this particular book, The Collected Schizophrenia, is, is a collection of essays about what it is like to struggle with mental illness and chronic illnesses. So um, the author, she was a lab researcher at Stanford. She um, also uh, was a college student, but she, uh, over her life, has been diagnosed with several different mental disorders. Uh, at first, it was bipolar disorder. There was depression in there. Um, and eventually, she was diagnosed with schizophrenia, um, which is... Um, not one of the scariest mental illnesses, but I think one of the most, um, the ones with the most prejudices attached to it. It's, it's a complicated one to deal with. And so she, um, looks at, she talks about her diagnosis and her, um, what she has done to work with that, what it is like to live with schizophrenia, like what it is like to live with these kind of persistent delusions that despite medication, like still happened to her, um, what it was like to be involuntarily committed three different times and her experiences with that and why she thinks they kind of don't work and, um, looks at labeling and diagnosis and what the kind of what, how that works and whether that's accurate and how that kind of the different diagnoses you can give people carry their own different types of stigmas. Um, and it's, it's just fascinating. She brings in a lot of different, um, stories about mental illness and research and um, perceptions that we have. And it's always really grounded in her story and her experience as a person who has schizophrenia and other chronic illnesses. Um, and I just thought it was fascinating. It's a really quick little read. The essays aren't super long, but they just kind of cover this whole range of interesting issues that get you really thinking about how we talk about mental illness and how we understand it and try to help people who are, are struggling in that way. Um, and so it's just Really, really interesting. Um, so that is The Collected Schizophrenia by Esme Weijang Wang. That's a really great book. Her novel, um, Borders of Paradise, I think, and now that I'm saying it doesn't sound right to me, but I think that's what it's called, um, from Unnamed Press, is also excellent. Um, so 
my last pick is a super downer again. <laughs> um, so I'm not going to say much about it. It's called Say Nothing, A True Story of Murder and Memory in Northern Ireland by Patrick Radden Keefe. It takes place during the Troubles uh, in December of 1972. Jean McConville, um, she was a mother of 10. She was dragged out of her house in front of everyone with her children hanging on to her um, and taken away by the IRA and was never seen again. Um, and it was sort of like this open secret um, in which, you know, the people in the area knew who did it. Um, the cops knew who did it, but no one would say because everyone was afraid for their own lives and, and no one would stand up to the NRA. And in 2013, um, her remains were found. Uh, and they, he kind of talks about like how this violence affected um, her family members, uh, other members of other families uh, with victims uh, during the Troubles. Um, for, he talks to former NRA members. He talks about Jerry Adams. Uh, and it's just sort of how like the violence just kind of ended, but it was never really reconciled for these people. Um, so there are still a lot of questions and a lot of heartbreak and a lot of uh, nobody got closure, I guess. And so it's just, it's really heartbreaking, but very, very interesting. Um, so it is called Say Nothing, A True Story of Murder and Memory in Northern Ireland by Patrick Radden Keefe. Excellent. That one like slid by me and I, I missed it. But then um, Linda Holmes, who's one of the co-hosts of the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast, mentioned it um, as one thing that she had read and really appreciated and that it gave her some really good context for the like the struggles that have happened in that area and why it is so fraught still. Um, and that kind of put it on my list too. So very cool. Um, all right. So with that, we've kind of covered some of our favorite nonfiction. I would love to hear on social media what some of your favorite nonfiction of the year so far has been because there's obviously like tons and tons out there that I haven't even heard of and uh, which is the best part about books, right, is all the stuff that's there. So um, yeah, so we'll conclude uh, the podcast as we always do by talking about what we are reading uh, right at this very minute or what we're excited to get started with. So uh, Liberty, I'll let you go first again. I am going to read uh, the Library of the Unwritten. Um, it is by A.J. Hackwith. It's coming out October 1st, and it's about the library in hell. And I did not realize I needed this in my life, but it's about um, the unwritten wing, which is a neutral space in hell where all the stories unfinished by their authors reside. And the head librarian, Claire, at this library. Um, it, it Doesn't it sound amazing? Like, I've, I've always needed this. Yeah, I saw it on your Instagram and the cover looks so cool too. I'm yes. a sucker for good book covers, like so hard. Yeah, that looks awesome. Um, so a book that I am excited to maybe pick up soon or I, I think I'm going to bring it with me on my travels for Memorial Day weekend, uh, Southern Lady Code by Helen Ellis. Um, and the reason I'm excited about this one is so I, I mentioned earlier I went to a, a literary festival last uh last weekend? Gosh, no, two weekends ago. Uh, so Wordplay Festival was the first year of Wordplay in Minneapolis. And I saw Helen Ellis on a panel with um, a Minnesota author, Lorna Landvik. And they were kind of talking about women and comedy and all of that. And so Southern Lady Code is her collection of essays. Um, and the, subti or the subtitle on it is a Southern Lady Code is a technique by which if you don't have something nice to say, you say something not so nice in a nice way. 
Um, and she, Helen Ellis was just, she was so funny on this panel, like just the stories about her mother and, um, Southern, like being a Southern lady and all of that stuff. Like it was just hilarious. And so, um, I bought her book and then the friend I was with also bought it and read it and said, it's hilarious and really great. So it seems like a good, like take it on a holiday weekend, enjoy it. Uh, cause it's just funny and awesome. So Southern Lady Code by Helen Ellis essay is cheerful nonfiction for the holiday, which hooray. She's so great. She's so yeah. great. And she is so funny. And also I never get tired of mentioning that she is the one who taught Colson Whitehead how to play poker when he became like a professional poker player. And also at that convention, at that festival, uh, you met Mary Laura Philpot, who also has an amazing book out this year that I love. Yes, I did. She was so nice too. I get so, so I just get so tongue tied when I meet authors in person. I don't know. I don't know why. Like they're just human people, but I just get ridiculously tongue tied. And so I met Mary Laura Philpott and I just sort of like word vomited at her about how much I liked her um, collection of essays that came out this year. Um, Yeah. I was excited for you. Yeah. Helen Ellis, you talked about her. She talked about her poker face at the panel and yeah, it just sounded so funny because she's just like this like well-coiffed lady who's got this like big, you know, she had a funny thing about Southern people and how they do their hair and how you have to be, you know, poof. I don't remember what it was, but poofed up and everything. And so she shows up with like her big poofy hair and glasses and pearls to like beat people at poker, which is just (laughs) so delightful. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Liberty, for joining us for this week's episode of For Real. It was really fun to have you. Thank you for asking. And so with that, we will get everything wrapped up so you can find us on social media. Uh, Alice and I are both on Twitter. Alice is at It's Alice Time, and I'm at Kim the Dork. And Liberty is primarily on Instagram at Friends and Comes Alive. Uh, and if you have a few minutes to go to iTunes and rate and review the podcast, that would be great. Uh, ratings and reviews help people find us more easily. And while you are there, you can subscribe so you can get new episodes the very minute that they come out. And so with that, I am Kim Ukra with guest host Liberty Hardy, and we thank you for listening to this week's episode of the For Real Podcast. Bye. Thank you.